General Motors had virtually invented the modern corporation, with professional managers as opposed to family founders presiding over decentralized operations that were governed by central financial control. It had pioneered modern marketing, public relations, and the hierarchy of brands that made automobiles vehicles for social as well as physical mobility. It had set standards for everything from style and design to corporate healthcare plans. The company had come through two world wars and the depression and had stood as the defining corporation of America's economic hegemony after World War II. But that very success had bred complacency, arrogance, and hubris. It had fostered the isolation of executives who never had to shop for a car and the union's transformation from protecting workers' rights to protecting their right to be paid indefinitely for not working. Had GM's bankruptcy filing occurred a few years earlier, stock markets around the world would have collapsed in panic. But the day that it really did happen, June 1st, 2009, the Dow Jones Industrial Average actually jumped 221 points. America was almost relieved. So were many people in Detroit itself, now that the anxious waiting was over. So this is from the book Crash Course, The American Automobile Industry's Road from Glory to Disaster by Paul Ingrassia. I'm recording this at the beginning of November 2023. So for context, the United Auto Workers had been on strike against Ford, GM, and Stellantis since September 15th. There's now a tentative agreement in place, but I'll get to that towards the end of this. Anyways, there's so much great information in this book, and it's extremely well written. The The author has a lot of personality and is very opinionated and very snarky. And so if you're interested in more of the story, I strongly recommend the book. And he gets into a lot more of the Ford and Chrysler problems during this 2008-2009 time frame, whereas I'm really just going to concentrate on the the GM specific problems. I think this would take way too long to really dive into it all and focus on all three. And maybe at another time I would get into Chrysler since Ford kind of comes out of it okay-ish, but the scope of this episode will really just be GM. So there's, there's a lot of people that are involved in this story, but I'm going to try to keep the names fairly limited in the episode so that there's not a lot of people to try to keep track of. But this story is one of those death by a thousand cuts and a few gunshot wounds as well. At any rate, I think to get a good sense of what led to GM's demise, I think it's useful to 
kind of start at the beginning and get a quick overview of the history and build up to how things got as bad as they were. Quote, Detroit was a mecca for automotive entrepreneurs back then, just as San Jose is for, inter- for internet innovators today. And then, as now, most of the inventions failed. But in 1901, Henry Ford cemented his reputation and won a $1,000 prize by scoring an upset victory in a race on a dirt track in what is now Gross Point. So in 1903, Ford found new investors to start a third company, the Ford Motor Company. With himself as vice president and chief engineer, it turned out a few hand-built cars a day. His engines came from the Dodge brothers, Horace and John, who accepted 10% of Ford stock in lieu of cash, unquote. In 1913, Ford got the idea for a moving assembly line by studying the meatpacking plants in Chicago. Ford started with components like engines and transmissions and spread the concept to the entire operation. To simplify the production further, he famously said to customers that they could have any color they wanted as long as it's black. As a result of the assembly line, production time dropped from 13 hours a car to just about 90 minutes. In 1914, Ford announced the company would start paying its factory workers $5 a day, more than double their previous wages. This is something like $160 today. Ford started a new sociological department to ensure that, quote, the extra pay went only for better homes, milk, fruit, vegetables, and Ford cars, not for liquor and riotous living, unquote. The $5 a day generated enormous publicity and powerful marketing momentum for Ford. Model T sales soared, and Ford was, quote, besieged with letters from grateful workers who no longer had to hire out their children as servants, unquote. Other industrialists were outraged, however. The Wall Street Journal claimed Ford, quote, has in his social endeavor committed economic blunders if not crimes, unquote. Ford argued that his employees should be able to afford his cars. Quote, if an employer does not share prosperity with those who make him prosperous, then pretty soon there will be no prosperity to share, unquote. What started primarily as a business strategy soon gained profound social importance and laid the foundation for America's middle class. Model T sales peaked at 1.8 million cars in 1923. Ford was outselling all his competitors combined. In 1925, Ford cut the Model T's base price to an all-time low of $260, or about $8,000 today. Quote, One of the upstart challengers was Billy Durant, whose remarkable life was a corporate soap opera, sort of a cross between barbarians at the gate and as the world turns. Durant created General Motors, lost it, founded Chevrolet, regained control of GM, lost it again, and ended his career running a bowling alley in Flint, Michigan, convinced that bowling would be the next big thing of the 1940s. Along the way, he amassed an enormous personal fortune and then went bankrupt, unquote. 
Born in Boston in 1861 and raised in Flint, Michigan, Billy Durant initially found early automobiles bothersome until he drove a Buick in 1904. After joining David Buick's company, he eventually took control. In 1908, Durant founded General Motors and used the proceeds from its stock offering to buy several companies, including Oldsmobile, Pontiac, and Cadillac. He tried to acquire Ford with GM stock, but Henry Ford insisted on cash, preventing a deal that could have forever reshaped the auto industry. Durant was a key figure in the American auto industry, hiring notable names like Walter Chrysler and Alfred Sloan Jr. While he excelled at at acquiring companies, he struggled to manage them. In 1910, GM faced financial issues due to excessive stock issuance, debt, and overlapping car models, issues it would face again in 2008 and 9. New York banks intervened and reshaped management, sidelining Durant. As part of the financial restructuring, Walter Chrysler was brought in to manage and revitalize GM's Buick division. Durant went and co-founded Chevrolet and secretly began amassing GM shares using profits from Chevy. By 1915, Durant regained control of GM after obtaining ownership of over half the company. Another pivotal hire made under Durant was Alfred Sloan Jr. Sloan started at Hyatt Roller Bearing, a struggling company making ball bearings for sugarcane machines. After his father bought the company in 1899, Sloan quickly made it profitable. By 1900, he secured an order from Olds Motor Works, which would later become Oldsmobile. In 1916, Durant bought Hyatt for $13.5 million, and Sloan joined GM. Durant and Sloan's management styles were drastically different. Durant's erratic behavior frustrated a lot of people, including Walter Chrysler, who eventually decided to leave GM in 1919. Sloan proposed a reorganization plan to Durant, but Durant paid it little attention. Durant was focused on GM's rapid expansion, pushing Sloan to consider leaving as well. In 1920, the post-war economic boom ended and GM's sales plummeted from 40,000 cars a month to under 15,000. Its stock dropped as well from over $400 a share to under $15. Durant had heavily invested in GM using borrowed money and was now almost $40 million in debt. Remember, this is 1920, $40 million. Durant exited GM, and in a few years, Alfred Sloan Jr. became GM's president and CEO. In GM's 1924 annual report, Sloan introduced a strategy to, quote, build a car for every purse and purpose, unquote. GM's divisions, including Chevrolet, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick, and Cadillac, would offer a range of cars from budget to luxury, each with features matching its price point. This mass class approach was coupled with, quote, decentralized operations with central control, unquote, allowing division managers considerable autonomy within set financial boundaries. 
Sloan basically invented the structure of modern corporations for decades to come. Again, Walter Chrysler left GM in 1919 and went into business for himself, starting the eponymous Chrysler Corporation in 1925. In 1928, he launched the Plymouth brand, but his biggest success came with purchasing Dodge from New York bankers who had gained control of the company after the deaths of the Dodge brothers. After the Dodge deal, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler controlled 75% of the U.S. car market, leading to the moniker the Big Three. The United Automobile Workers, UAW, was established in 1935 following the approval of the Wagner Act, which ensured workers' rights to organize. The Ruther brothers, especially Walter, were central figures in the early UAW. In 1936, frustrated UAW members at GM plants staged the famous sit-down strike lasting 44 days until GM finally recognized the UAW's collective bargaining rights. Workers literally just sat down at their posts and refused to leave. Chrysler followed suit, but Ford resisted until 1937 when a violent confrontation between UAW members and Ford security known as the Battle of the Overpass, brought national attention to the Union struggles. In 1945, Ruther led a strike against GM, demanding either a wage increase or transparency in GM's financial books. GM had said they couldn't afford the Union demands, but wouldn't let the Union see their books either. The 113-day strike concluded with significant gains for workers, including raises and vacation pay. By 1946, Walter Ruther became the UAW president, a position he would hold for 25 years. The relationship between GM and the UAW in the 1950s and 60s was marked by a few significant events. In 1950, the so-called Treaty of Detroit provided automatic wage increases, pensions, and health insurance contributions. In exchange, the union reduced its rights to strike, allowing companies to invest more confidently. Similar agreements soon emerged in other industries. This pattern bargaining meant companies within the same industry had similar labor costs. This is where some of the inflationary concerns from the prior episode start to get debated. The UAW expanded its influence beyond the big three automakers in the early 60s. By 1964, automation led to job reductions, prompting the UAW to push for worker protection and retraining. The late 1960s saw the UAW focus on vehicle and worker safety. On November 11, 1970, GM and the UAW ended a bitter 67-day strike over the union's demand for big wage increases to offset rising inflation. Reporters asked executives whether the new contract would fuel inflation, but couldn't get a straight answer. Quote, When the press conference ended, the frustrated journalist retreated to a nearby men's room. There, New York Times correspondent Jerry Flint pulled a piece of chalk out of his pocket and drew two large circles on the floor. He firmly planted a foot in each circle and shouted, Inflationary! 
Then he informed his fellow scribes that they could write with accuracy that the contract was described in some circles as inflationary, unquote. The new GM contract granted the company's 400,000 hourly workers a 30% wage hike over the next three years. It ended the cap on cost of living adjustments and accelerated the payment schedule from annually to quarterly. Most notably, the new contract allowed workers to retire after 30 years on the job at age 58 with a full pension of $500 per month. To the UAW's leaders, the 30 and out provision represented social progress. 30 years was long enough for mind-numbing work on the assembly lines, and early retirements would create new job opportunities for younger workers. The contract was the first negotiated since UAW head Walter Ruther was killed in a plane crash the previous May. During his 25 years in charge, Ruther had secured cost-of-living adjustments, generous wage increases, health insurance, and supplemental unemployment benefits during layoffs. Quote, The wages and benefits allowed UAW members to live comfortable middle-class lives, and Ruther reasoned that similar pay and perks eventually would spread to workers in other industries. In other words, what was good for the UAW was good for America. Unquote. Walter Ruther's vision for the UAW extended beyond financial benefits, emphasizing the overall well-being of union members. He instituted various committees in the factories addressing areas like health, education, and recreation. Committee members were rewarded handsomely for their participation, which incentivized allegiance to the UAW leadership. As a result, the car companies effectively financed union initiatives. After Ruther, Leonard Woodcock became the head of the UAW. Under his leadership, workers saw improvements in pay and benefits. However, the UAW focused heavily on workers' rights with, without equally emphasizing their responsibilities. In doing so, the UAW started to kill the goose that laid the golden eggs. Quote, When a machine broke down and stopped the assembly line, workers would take an unscheduled break and wait for an electrician or machinist instead of rushing to fix it themselves. Only skilled tradesmen were allowed to repair machinery, even if ordinary workers were capable of doing it. Rules enforced not only by the national contract, but also by the separate local contracts at each factory. The electricians or machinists often took their time getting to where they were needed, so that the plant would have to go into overtime to make up for lost production, and everyone would get more money." Unquote. Managers yielded to union demands, seeing it as the easier option since consumers bore the costs. If one company agreed to union terms, the others followed suit to avoid any imbalances. The automakers were also constrained by Ralph Nader's consumer movement and America's growing environmental consciousness, which led to new federal guidelines. Lead was phased out of gasoline with the passage of the Clean Air Act, but engineers hadn't yet learned how to make high-horsepower engines run without it. With increased regulations, disaffected workers, and inept managers, Detroit's quality nosedived 
just as import sales were growing. In 1960, imports had accounted for less than 5% of U.S. car sales, but by 1971, they accounted for about 15%, or 1.5 million cars out of the total 10 million sold. Most imports were from Germany, but Japanese cars were gaining ground. In October 1973, following the Yom Kippur War, OPEC imposed an oil embargo on the U.S., Israel's main ally. Gas prices in the U.S. jumped by nearly 60%, and shortages led to long lines at gas stations. To manage the crisis, odd-even fill-up days were introduced. License plates that ended with even numbers would fill up on certain days and odd numbers on the other days. A national speed limit of 55 miles per hour was enacted in 1974 to promote better fuel economy. Sammy Hagar would later write a song about this. For years, Japanese car companies had limited success in the U.S., but the surge in gas prices led many Americans to opt for fuel-efficient Japanese cars over larger Detroit-made vehicles. After driving the Japanese vehicles, consumers appreciated their reliability and fuel efficiency. Imports gained from the trend towards small cars as rising inflation squeezed people's pockets. A new generation of subcompact cars launched in 1970 to combat imports made Detroit's dysfunction even more apparent. The heavy drive shaft connecting the front engine to the rear drive wheels created a big hump along the length of the floor. This made the already small car feel even more cramped and added extra weight, which further decreased fuel efficiency. Japanese imports weren't stylish, but they had the sort of innovation Detroit had neglected. Most had front-mounted engines and front-wheel drive, eliminating the need for a drive shaft, making the cars roomier and more fuel efficient. The weight of the engine directly over the drive wheels also increased traction in rain and snow. In 1975, Congress introduced the Corporate Average Fuel Economy Law, CAFE, mandating automakers achieve an average fuel efficiency of 27.5 miles per gallon by 1985, roughly double the 1975 average. Automakers objected, citing the, the ambitious target and the law's complex structure. Leonard Woodcock and the UAW anticipated that the big three might import more small cars from cheaper overseas factories. To prevent this, the CAFE law, which was influenced by the UAW, set separate fuel economy targets for U.S.-built cars and those that were imported. This forced GM, Ford, and Chrysler to manufacture most of their small cars domestically, even though the profits were slim. The automakers found themselves increasingly trapped between strict Washington regulations and costly labor contracts. In 1973, following just a two-day strike at Chrysler, the UAW secured multiple gains, including the right for workers to retire with full benefits at any age after 30 years of service, they previously had to be 58, 
This allowed workers who started at age 18 to retire by 48 and potentially draw a pension longer than they had worked if they lived to 79 or older. UAW members also had significant health care privileges without the usual co-pays. Additionally, early retirees received extra pension until they qualified for Social Security. Even Woodcock was shocked by the union's success. Quote, Our members have the best contract that people with their skills and education could ever hope to get. But we've convinced them that with every new contract, they're entitled to more. Unquote. While they could see that things were unsustainable, management also wasn't incentivized to fight the unions too much because they knew that whatever benefits the union got would trickle up to the executives as well. This resulted in a significant wealth transfer from shareholders to both blue-collar and white-collar employees, leading to the nickname Generous Motors. This happened with General Electric as well when I was reading about it. The employees starting, started referring to it as generous electric, so probably something of a red flag if that G in a company name changes to generous among the employees. But anyways, between 1971 and 1974, the price of GM's new subcompact Chevy Vega increased by nearly 20% to account for increased expenses. These price hikes further encouraged consumers to buy foreign cars. In the early 1980s, Detroit's automotive industry initially welcomed Honda's expansion into Ohio, believing that Honda would soon have to deal with the UAW as well. The UAW leaders and Honda's top executives in Tokyo assumed that Honda would eventually recognize the UAW, which it viewed as overly adversarial. While Honda paid its workers competitive wages, it fostered a more cooperative, team-based culture in its plants, emphasizing efficiency and valuing worker input. When the UAW tried to unionize Honda's Marysville plant in 1985, Honda's management resisted. Despite pressure from Honda's president in Japan, U.S. management stood their ground. The UAW attempted to hold a secret ballot election, but this was eventually dropped, marking a significant defeat for the union. Honda's success in the U.S. inspired other Japanese car companies to establish operations in America. From 1980 to 1990, Honda's U.S. sales more than doubled, with over half of the cars being manufactured in the U.S. Honda's establishment in Ohio marked a significant shift in the automotive industry, challenging the dominance of Detroit's Big Three and the UAW. Quote, Just as General Motors was led by the financial people, Honda would always be led by engineers, all of them graduates of Honda R&D. Put another way, the bean counters ran GM while the car guys ran Honda. It would make a critical difference between Honda's success and GM's failure. Unquote. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the U.S. auto industry faced significant challenges due to a recession and increased competition from Japanese manufacturers. 
As a result, the UAW agreed to significant concessions termed givebacks, amounting to reversals of previous wage and benefit gains. Both GM and Ford negotiated these givebacks, which included a wage freeze, delayed cost of living allowances, and reduced paid holidays. GM made a major misstep, however. On the same day the union agreed to concessions, GM revealed a new executive pay plan that made it easier for higher-ups to earn big bonuses. In June 1984, GM acquired Electronic Data Systems, EDS, to modernize its electronic infrastructure. EDS's CEO, Ross Perot, joined GM's board and led the tech overhaul. To address the UAW's concerns about automation, GM introduced the Jobs Bank program, ensuring workers displaced by automation received 95% of their wages until they were reassigned. Although GM initially wanted to cap the program's expenses and restrict eligibility, the UAW's previous grievances led GM to expand these terms. Ford and Chrysler were forced to accept a jobs bank as well in order to prevent strikes. The jobs bank program would have major ramifications for the future. Quote, the original intent of the jobs bank was to provide temporary security for hourly workers on layoff. But like a lot of other things in Detroit, it had evolved into something else altogether. By the 1990s, laid-off workers could, re- could remain bankers, as they were nicknamed with knowing irony, for an unlimited time, making 95% of their wages while not working. Thus an arrangement begun to protect workers had helped plunge the automakers into red ink and was threatening the survival of the companies that provided their jobs. In a perverse predictable twist, the jobs bank led to something called inverse layoffs, which occurred when senior workers volunteered to be laid off and thus bumped junior workers back onto the assembly line. After all, why should a worker with high seniority slave away building cars when workers with lower seniority collected virtually full pay just for sitting around? Such was the logic of Detroit's dysfunction." In his 1989 shareholder letter, Warren Buffett described what he called the institutional imperative. He said that, quote, any business craving of the leader, however foolish, will be quickly supported by detailed rate of return and strategic studies prepared by his troops and the behavior of peer companies, whether they are expanding, acquiring, setting executive compensation, or whatever, will be mindlessly imitated, unquote. In 1985, GM acquired Hughes Aircraft, a segment of the Howard Hughes empire, which specialized in products like night vision devices and satellite systems considered essential for future automotive innovations. Not to be outdone, Chrysler would acquire Gulfstream jets later that year. Quote, while Detroit was diversifying, the Honda Accord became the best-selling car in America. Unlike the big three, Honda and the other Japanese automakers were investing heavily in new automotive technology. 
engines with direct fuel injection, overhead camshafts, and multiple valves per cylinder, and four-speed automatic transmissions, the Japanese were using all these advances to improve the driving performance of their cars without sacrificing fuel economy. But such basic engineering investments didn't produce headlines. In any way, the big three were producing impressive financial results, at least for the short term, unquote. Automation efforts at GM were not proceeding as planned. Spray painting robots malfunctioned, spraying each other instead of the cars. Robots with suction cup arms to install windshields broke as many as they installed. Ross Perot was highly critical of GM in an interview with Business Week. Quote, The first EDSer who sees a snake kills it. At GM, the first thing you do is organize a committee on snakes. Then you bring in a consultant about snakes. Third thing you do is talk about it for a year. Unquote. Aiming to revolutionize labor relations and compete more effectively with imports like the Honda Civic and Toyota Corolla, in 1983, GM created the Saturn brand. GM CEO Roger Smith declared, quote, Saturn is the key to GM's long-term competitiveness, survival, and success, unquote. As a side note, Roger Smith and the closure of several GM factories in Flint, Michigan, was the subject of Michael Moore's first documentary in 1989, Roger and Me. Anyway, Saturn would have its own state-of-the-art factory and workforce with a unique labor agreement not bound by the UAW master contract. The project attracted immense national attention with multiple governors making public appeals for the plant and its thousands of jobs to come to their state similar to Amazon's HQ2 fervor in 2019. Tennessee was ultimately selected as the location for the new plant. A memorandum between Saturn and the UAW in July 1985 highlighted significant departures from the traditional labor agreements, including streamlined job classifications and pay linked to Saturn's performance, it encouraged greater worker involvement in decision-making, similar to how they were doing things in the Japanese plants. Donald Eflin, a key UAW leader with experience observing the Japanese management methods, was pivotal in shaping Saturn's labor vision. The Saturn contract took a collaborative approach, pairing each executive with a union counterpart for joint decision-making. Workers would be paid 80% of the UAW master contract wage, with the remainder linked to productivity and quality. Other innovative features included a profit-sharing plan and limitations on seniority benefits. All employees would be treated the, sh the same regardless of how long they had been employed there. The goal was to create a new cooperative work environment that was a significant departure from the traditional automotive assembly lines. Workers, renamed technicians, felt a greater sense of loyalty and involvement in this new environment. While Roger Smith praised Saturn as a role model, most GM employees were not part of Saturn, which led to resentment. Chevrolet dealers felt Saturn diverted funds that could have been used to make new Chevrolet models. 
1987, there were doubts about the viability of Saturn even within GM's executive ranks, and operations were scaled back. Similarly, within the UAW, there was resistance to the cooperative approach represented by Saturn. A faction criticized the UAW's leadership for being too cooperative with management and advocated for more confrontational tactics. They targeted Eflin for collaborating with management. Facing increasing criticism, Eflin retired in 1989. Having hit the mandatory retirement age of 65, Roger Smith also retired, but not before fulfilling his promise to drive the first Saturn off the assembly line. But because of his damaged public image, Saturn's line-off ceremony was held privately to prevent associating the new brand with Smith's tarnished image. While Saturn represented a new and improved approach, there were significant questions as to whether or not GM could integrate this approach more broadly across the company. GM prioritized other financial commitments over updating or enhancing Saturn's models. While competitors like Honda and Toyota updated their vehicles, Saturn lagged behind. Requests for SUV funding were denied in favor of promoting Chevy's SUVs, and as a result, Saturn faced product stagnation. Additionally, Saturn's commitment to workplace democracy resulted in increased costs and inefficiencies. Remember, each executive was paired with a union counterpart for joint decision-making. They had hundreds of sourcing teams for machinery and components, each with a UAW representative. Suppliers were then chosen using a point system that prioritized unionized companies. As a result, Saturn paid higher prices for parts than it otherwise would have. During the early 90s, as GM's dedication to Saturn waned, the UAW's distrust shifted to open hostility. Steven Jokic, a prominent UAW figure known for his fiery temperament and opposition to compromise, began to exert his influence. Contrasting sharply with the more moderate Eflin, Jokic believed that, that the Saturn contract compromised too much on traditional UAW values, especially seniority rights. He viewed tying workers' pay to corporate outcomes and replacing fixed pensions with 401k plans as jeopardizing the security and well-being of union members. Under Jokic's influence, Saturn's innovative labor practices were reined in, and by 1996, a Saturn was being built in a GM factory under traditional UAW terms rather than at Saturn's flagship Tennessee location. In 1990, Robert Stemple became GM CEO, succeeding Roger Smith. After taking over as CEO, Stemple expanded the jobs bank. Previously, the program had been for workers impacted by automation. Now it would be available for workers idled for almost any reason, including a sales slowdown. These workers could collect 95% of their wages without working without any time limit, and without seeking another job. GM's earnings were declining, and money that might have been used to develop new high-tech engines or upgrade vehicles was being used to fund elaborate job security provisions. Instead of directly addressing financial missteps, 
that negatively impacted earnings, GM used a variety of accounting tactics to make things look better than they were. They extended factory depreciation charges from 35 to 45 years, raised the expected returns from their pension fund, and altered accounting assumptions for inventories and auto leases. These changes allowed GM to report a record income of $4.9 billion under accepted accounting standards. GE had done a similar thing when they were forecasting all the savings they were going to reap from implementing sensors and data collection on all their equipment. But you can't pay salaries with earning estimates. Rather than protecting UAW members, the Jobs Bank threatened the very existence of the companies that employed them. There was a mild recession in the early 90s that worsened when the U.S. entered the conflict in the Persian Gulf. Car sales plunged. GM lost $2 billion in 1990 and another $4.5 billion in 1991. In November 1992, with the company dangerously close to bankruptcy, GM's directors ousted Stemple. It was the first time the board had dumped a CEO since the days of Billy Durant. The directors turned to a quiet executive named Jack Smith, no relation to Roger. They also installed a new executive team since much of Roger Smith's team was still in place. A rising star by the name of Rick Wagner was appointed CFO. In 1998, a labor conflict arose in Flint when GM attempted to relocate machinery from a factory that had been overpaying workers for partial workdays. This move, interpreted as a direct challenge to the UAW, led to massive strikes. While only 9,200 workers went on strike, the two affected factories made essential components for many GM plants. The resulting shutdown sidelined some 175,000 GM workers and many others at related supplier factories. The strike led to a nearly 1% drop in U.S. industrial production for the month, marking the most significant decrease in five years. Even Saturn workers in Spring Hill, Tennessee, considered authorizing a strike. Amid the ongoing strike, the UAW leadership attended their convention in Las Vegas. The GM-UAW contract generally prohibited strikes during the length of the agreement except on issues of production standards and safety. GM's legal team suggested suing the union over contract violations, but the company's labor relations team feared the backlash that would cause. With losses surpassing a billion dollars, GM proceeded to sue the UAW. By late July, the UAW feared they might actually lose the lawsuit against GM, risking bankruptcy if they were ordered to compensate GM for its losses. However, just before a ruling, GM's executives decided that winning might lead to more problems, like potential sabotage from disgruntled workers. Ultimately valuing familiarity over conflict, GM and the UAW settled, ending GM's most expensive strike in 28 years after $2.2 billion in losses. After the strike, GM made additional work rule concessions. It also returned the equipment that had been removed, which had initiated the conflict in the first place. This victory was celebrated by the UAW with a literal parade, 
GM changed its chief of labor relations to someone tasked with maintaining good relations with the UAW. The company also introduced a score sheet for managers to evaluate the risk of strikes due to productivity changes. Major publications criticized GM for not taking a firm stance either by confronting the union or fully adopting the Saturn model. Barron's noted that GM was, quote, building lean and agile plants too quickly to keep the union quiet and too slowly to make big annual gains in productivity, unquote. Following the settlement, GM spun off its components operations, including the strike-prone Flint facilities, into a new independent company called Delphi Corporation. GM's board was frustrated with paying high prices for parts from their own plants that had the power to halt the entire company. The Delphi spinoff would give GM the freedom to purchase components from other independent suppliers. Critically, GM agreed to the union's demands to guarantee the pensions of Delphi workers in the event Delphi could not pay them. In 2000, Rick Wagner was the unanimous choice to succeed Jack Smith as GM CEO after Smith also retired. Wagner's rapid rise to CFO, then to president and COO, positioned him as the ideal candidate. At almost 47 years old, Wagner was set for nearly two decades in the top job. One of Wagner's early objectives was to grow GM's international operations. GM planned to purchase 20% of Fiat for $2.5 billion in GM stock. This would make Fiat GM's largest individual shareholder, with 5% of the shares outstanding. The acquisition would grant GM access to Fiat's diesel engine technology, saving development cost. Additionally, Fiat secured what amounted to a put option. Fiat negotiated a clause that allowed them to force GM to acquire the remaining 80% of Fiat between 2004 and 2009. Wagner introduced a new strategy for GM centered on global alliances with foreign car companies, with Fiat being a primary example. In another bold move, he announced the closure of Oldsmobile, a 103-year-old division of the company. Despite its historical significance, sales had dramatically decreased and Wagner's decision to shut it down was seen as proactive. Wagner also lured Bob Lutz from Chrysler to become GM's product czar. Lutz had been instrumental in reviving Chrysler in the mid-90s. Chrysler's minivan success showed a growing American preference for for versatile vehicles, leading them to acquire the Jeep brand from American Motors. Toyota, Honda, and Nissan initially missed the SUV and pickup trend, dismissing it as a passing fad, and were more focused on their luxury divisions. This allowed the big three to dominate the segments. SUVs, pickups, and minivans were categorized as light trucks by the EPA, which gave them lenient fuel economy standards. Despite being gas guzzlers, the cheap fuel prices of the 1990s accelerated the popularity of these vehicles. By the mid-1990s, SUVs and pickups rejuvenated Chrysler, Ford, and GM.
Throughout the 1990s, GM was more conservative than Ford and Chrysler, selling more cars than trucks. While GM's Chevy Blazer felt outdated and less stable compared to competitors like the Jeep Grand Cherokee and Ford Explorer, GM's ace in the hole was the Suburban. This oversized SUV had actually first debuted in the 1930s, but underwent a significant update in 1996, making it a popular choice among soccer moms. Meanwhile, Japanese automakers like Honda and Toyota were caught flat-footed by the SUV trend and found themselves without a competitive SUV offering. Until the mid-1990s, Toyota's forerunner was basically a pickup truck with an enclosed back end. The Japanese automakers were missing out on the truck trend while the big three cashed in. GM was making $10,000 profit on every Suburban it sold. Detroit got another big break as the rising value of the yen from 1985 to 1993 made exports more expensive for Japanese car companies, effectively doubling the costs of vehicles made in Japan and sold in the U.S. For the sake of simplicity, pretend one Japanese yen is equal to one U.S. dollar. A Japanese car that cost 10,000 yen would then be sold in the U.S. for $10,000. Now let's say that the yen strengthens and one Japanese yen is equal to $2. That same car that cost 10,000 yen in Japan would now be equivalent to $20,000 in the U.S. For an American buyer, the car has effectively become more expensive due to the strengthening of the yen, even though its price in yen has not changed. If the Japanese company wanted to maintain the original $10,000 price tag, they'd have to sell it for 5,000 yen, which might be below the material cost of the car. Despite rapid growth in the U.S., the Japanese market share dropped from nearly 26% in 1991 to 23% by 1993. Meanwhile, the Big Three in Detroit began adopting Japanese manufacturing techniques and practices, leading to improved results. Rick Wagner bet heavily on the sustained profitability of SUVs and trucks, assuming longer-term, low-gas prices. There were certainly individuals raising concerns about the price of oil, but there's always people making predictions about oil prices. GM had been late to the SUV craze in the 90s by being overly cautious, and Wagner wasn't going to fix what wasn't broken by diversifying and offering more fuel-efficient cars when the market only wanted big SUVs. In 2001, trucks outsold cars for the first time 51 to 49 percent, a significant shift from 80 percent cars and 20 percent trucks two decades earlier. This appeared beneficial for the big three, who had been enhancing quality and increasing productivity, but with this success came growing complacency. An internal analysis at GM identified that the company had too many brands, dealers, factories, and workers leading to bloated costs. The report suggested trimming the fat. Wagner dismissed these findings. Shutting down Oldsmobile had proven far more difficult than he had expected. The dealerships are a very powerful political lobby, much like the UAW. 
When a brand is discontinued, dealers who sold those vehicles are entitled to compensation. In the case of Oldsmobile, this was close to a billion dollars. Following this confrontation over Oldsmobile, Wagner adopted a more cautious approach, gradually merging some brands and relying on attrition for workforce reduction. Wagner hoped that GM would continue to generate enough profits to meet its obligations. The company even took on unrelated risks with GMAC and home mortgages in an attempt to ensure that it did. GMAC was the financial services arm of General Motors established in 1919 to provide financing to consumers, seeing as most people could not afford to purchase a vehicle without financing. Between 2002 and 2006, during the biggest housing boom in U.S. history, GMAC heavily invested in home mortgages, yielding significant profits. GM dealers were surprised when customers eventually began to scoff at the idea of completing a GMAC credit application for a car when they hadn't needed one for their mortgage. In the early 2000s, rebates and discounts at GM were averaging a staggering 4500 on every car and truck. Even after killing Oldsmobile, it still had eight brands and was losing market share. Reducing rebates was out of the question because it would mean selling fewer cars and GM needed every sale it could get. By 2003, the company had almost half a million retirees and spouses who outnumbered active employees by nearly three to one. All of them were collecting pension and health care benefits, and UAW members, past and present, still didn't have to pay deductibles or co-pays for doctor visits. GM had to keep the factories running just to support these financial obligations. Despite these pressures, GM did not negotiate more favorable terms with the union, even though Steve Jokic had retired by this point. He was succeeded by Ron Gettelfinger in 2002. In 2003, GM conducted a sale of 30-year bonds, raising $17.6 billion in order to fund retiree obligations. Some analysts saw GM moving closer to junk bond status as it substituted one financial obligation for another, retirees for bondholders. In 2004, GM had its last profitable year with most of the earnings coming from GMAC's mortgage business rather than from car sales. Despite these red flags, Rick Wagner remained optimistic, believing GM was on the right path. While retiree expenses were increasing, GM's internal data did not project a decline in retiree numbers until 2008. The $17.6 billion raised from GM's 2003 bond sale would serve as interim financing. GM aimed to manage its financial obligations to retirees without slashing benefits in order to avoid potential strikes. Wagner also planned to slowly address GM's other issues, like redundant brands and dealers, but wanted to avoid any abrupt actions like the costly discontinuation of Oldsmobile. By the end of 2004, GM controlled 27% of the market, down from 33% 10 years prior. Half of this share came from Chevrolet, while the other seven GM brands averaged only 2% each. 
This diluted product development and marketing resources, many GM cars resembled each other. These were, re- these were referred to as look shares. For example, the 2005 Saab was essentially a modified Subaru, which led people to refer to it as a Sabaru. In early 2005, GM dealers had 1.3 million unsold vehicles. Despite having the capacity to produce more cars, there wasn't enough demand. With eight brands to manage, GM produced a lot of average vehicles instead of focusing on a few exceptional ones. Even standout models like the Cadillac CTS lacked features found in rivals. One solution was to eliminate several brands and reduce staff ensuring profitability with a smaller market share, but this meant confronting the UAW and dealers, which Wagner had no interest in doing. In March 2005, gas prices rose to $2.11 a gallon, a 21% increase from the previous year. This led to a 19% drop in SUV sales over two months. Wagner believed the dip in SUV sales was short-lived and aimed to increase GM's market share. At the beginning of May 2005, the investor Kirk Kerkorian announced that he had taken a 4% position in GM and would buy another 5%. Kerkorian was a self-made billionaire and a major figure in the shaping of Las Vegas. He had built the largest hotel there three times. Kerkorian had also taken a significant stake in Chrysler during the 90s. He had attempted a takeover in 1995, but was unsuccessful. His large position still yielded him a profit of almost $3 billion when Daimler-Benz and Chrysler merged in 1998. GM stock was trading around $25, down from $75 when Rick Wagner took over five years earlier. Shortly after the news about Kikorian, S&P downgraded GM's debt to junk bond status. This wasn't just a blow to GM's reputation. It directly impacted GMAC and its mortgage division, which relied on borrowing money to lend at higher rates. Increased borrowing costs ate into profit margins. Quote, U.S. car sales were cruising toward 16.99 million vehicles for the year, almost an all-time record, but GM was careening toward the largest full-year loss in its history. If GM was losing billions in this kind of market, could the company ever make money? It was the right question, and Wagner's reply seemed to signal his resolve to turn things around. Nobody wants to be the guy who runs General Motors when it goes out of business. In due course, he would find out how it felt to be that guy. Unquote. Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans that August, causing gasoline prices to increase to nearly $3 a gallon. Again, gas was just $1.75 the year before. Despite declining demand, GM was set to launch a new line of SUVs, including a new Chevy Suburban, Chevy Tahoe, and GMC Yukon in 2006. Wagner had expedited their development, primarily because these vehicles were GM's only profitable domestic products. Given the long development cycle for new vehicles and their imminent launch, GM proceeded with the release despite the climate being totally wrong for these products. Consumers were looking for more fuel-efficient cars again. In 2004, Sergio Marchionne became the new CEO of Fiat. He had a reputation for being a tough negotiator 
and saw the put option forcing GM to buy fiat as leverage that could be used to his advantage. In November 2005, Marchionne demanded $2 billion from GM in addition to the initial 2.5 GM had already invested in fiat. Otherwise, he was going to invoke his right to force GM to buy fiat. GM tried to claim that fiat had invalidated their arrangement through various financial moves that GM hadn't approved, but ultimately GM had $24 billion in cash, and Rick Wagner didn't want to deal with the risk of a lawsuit that maybe ended up forcing GM to buy fiat. About a month later, GM revealed it wouldn't meet its earnings forecast of $5 per share and instead expected between $1 to $2 due to significant losses in North America. This downward revision highlighted GM's declining sales and excessive overhead. There was some speculation about GM's potential bankruptcy, but most financial experts at the time dismissed this idea. Just when things looked like they couldn't get much worse for GM, Delphi re-emerged as a problem. These were the component operations, including the flint plants that had striked in the late 90s and caused so much trouble that GM spun them off as their own company. Delphi reported a first quarter loss of $460 million in 2005. Meanwhile, Delphi workers earned significantly higher wages compared to workers in similar industries due to an old UAW agreement that demanded equal pay for all GM workers. Additionally, Delphi had been paying $400 million annually to idled workers in the jobs bank, another obligation inherited from GM. Corporate turnaround expert Steve Miller was brought in as Delphi's CEO at the beginning of June. While Delphi had managed earlier due to profitable overseas ventures, Miller was unwilling to continue without addressing its core issues. He informed both GM and the union that Delphi might head into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. This move would leave GM owing billions of dollars. Remember, GM agreed to guarantee the pensions of Delphi workers in a situation where Delphi couldn't pay them. Miller's requests for concessions from both GM and the union were met with sympathy, but not much else. Both sides assumed Miller was simply bluffing about bankruptcy. But he wasn't. Delphi declared bankruptcy on October 8th after the UAW rejected Miller's proposals to reduce wages, benefits, and eliminate Delphi's jobs bank. Right before filing, Miller approved two-year severance packages for 21 top Delphi executives in order to retain them through the bankruptcy restructuring period. The UAW was quick to pounce on the optics, claiming, quote, Once again, we see the disgusting spectacle of the people at the top taking care of themselves at the same time they are demanding extraordinary sacrifices from their hourly workers, unquote. Instead of not responding as Wagner and GM had done, Miller shot back. Maybe he should have put Delphi's executives into the jobs bank, where they would have to be paid forever, instead of just for two years. Miller then emphasized that, quote, the era of high-paid but low-skilled jobs was over. U.S. companies could no longer pay uncompetitive wages nor pay pensions and medical benefits to people who would spend more years in retirement than they spent working, unquote. 
Miller noted that Delphi was just the carry in the coal mine for Detroit, and things were about to get much worse for the big three, especially GM. While the UAW was furious with Miller for publicly criticizing them, privately they hired bankers to see if GM's financials were really as bad as they were being portrayed. They were even worse. On October 17th, the same day GM announced a $1.6 billion quarterly loss, the UAW agreed to minor health care cost reductions. While active workers kept their free medical benefits, retirees would begin paying health insurance premiums and deductibles. These measures would save GM $1 billion annually, but not for another year. The Jobs Bank and its $800 million annual price tag remained off-limits, however. In March 2006, GM reported its actual loss for 2005 wasn't $8.6 billion, as originally reported, but was really $10.6 billion, and it was going to have to restate financials from 2000 through 2005. Shortly after, Wagner pitched the board on selling 51% of GMAC to Cerberus, a private equity group. The idea was that selling to Cerberus would help boost GMAC's credit rating because it would no longer be tethered to GM's junk status. But the deal would also inject $13 billion of badly needed fresh capital into GM. At this point, the board was finally starting to have doubts about Wagner's abilities as CEO. He had just had his annual performance review about five months earlier, however. Nevertheless, there was open talk of replacing him. A GM board member named George Fisher, who had been CEO at Eastman Kodak from 1993 through 2000, when the company didn't adapt to the rise in digital photography, believed Wagner shouldn't be blamed for GM's problems. As Fisher saw it, Wagner was hamstrung by the union and dealer franchise laws. Quote, Fisher was a blind believer in boardroom loyalty, meaning loyalty to management as opposed to the shareholders whom directors were elected to represent. It's a common, though rarely acknowledged, attitude on corporate boards, especially when board members get red carpet treatment, and in the case of GM's directors, a new car to drive every few months. But Fisher's dogged loyalty in the face of GM's decline would prove exceptional by any standard, unquote. Fisher told Wagner he needed to be more proactive. The board was meeting April 2nd to vote on the GMAC deal with Cerberus and then planned to meet a week later, April 9th, to discuss what to do with Wagner. At the meeting on April 2nd, Wagner told the board that without their support, he could not be an effective CEO and would resign effective immediately. It's unclear how the vote would have gone on April 9th, but the board wanted to be in control regardless of that outcome, and Wagner had just given them an ultimatum, something he had never done with the union or dealers. Quote, As if on cue, the ever-loyal Fisher came to their rescue, he had prepared three different drafts of a statement of support for Rick. They were like the old Sears catalog model of good, better, and best, with the best 
in Fisher's view, expressing the board's unanimous support for Wagner, unquote. In May, GM reported that its first quarter loss of $323 million, it reported three weeks earlier, was actually a profit of $445 million due to an accounting change related to a healthcare deal with the UAW. While GM's public relations team presented this as a sign of the company's turnaround and stated GM was, quote, gaining traction, unquote, Jerry York, a close advisor to Kirk Kerkorian, and former CFO at Chrysler and IBM, said gaining traction was just a euphemism for BS and new cash flow was the more accurate measure of performance. Violating traditional business protocol, Kerkorian, York, and Nissan CEO Carlos Ghosn met in Nashville to discuss the possibility of a three-way alliance to help fix the problems at GM and oust Wagner. Ghosn had become CEO at both Renault and Nissan, forming an alliance between the two and orchestrating a successful turnaround for what had been a struggling Nissan. You could almost view Ghosn as an Elon Musk in his role as CEO at both SpaceX and Tesla, finding synergies between the two. But obviously the big difference here is that Nissan and Renault are both car companies. If you don't know anything about Gone, he's a really interesting character that I'm not going to get into too much. There's a new movie or series on Apple TV that I haven't really looked into too much. But if you don't know anything about him, it's it's an interesting story. Anyways... A few weeks later, York goes to meet Wagner in Detroit and fills him in on the details of their meeting and suggests that Wagner speaks with Krikorian. Wagner is obviously upset that Krikorian has gone behind his back and that he doesn't have faith in his plan to turn things around at GM. Krikorian calls up York and starts yelling, fuck that son of a bitch, if we have to, we'll hang up fucking 8k on him and so Krikorian files an 8k form with the SEC disclosing his goal of forming a Nissan Renault GM alliance GM holds an emergency board meeting it's felt that rejecting the alliance outright could lead to a lawsuit for breach of fiduciary duty Despite initial resistance, GM's board agrees to review Kerkorian's proposal. Nissan and Renault say they'll entertain the idea. They're willing to look at it. Analysis of the potential alliance showed that coordinating their purchasing operations could save between 8 and 10% on the price of components, which was a tremendous savings in the automobile industry. When this gets presented at the board, GM executives fire back that oh, they, they could cut costs by 8 to 10% if they wanted to. They're basically just looking for reasons not to make the deal happen. Because the reality is that Carlos Ghosn 
is clearly going to be the guy to take over and be in charge if the deal does go through. He had engineered a remarkable turnaround at Nissan, and Wagner has supervised this slow-motion train wreck at GM. At one point, Wagner notes that GM sold more than 9 million vehicles a year, which is twice as many as Nissan and Renault combined. So he didn't feel it was a given that GM required a partner to turn things around. But what Wagner doesn't mention was that GM had reported losing $10.6 billion selling all those cars. Meanwhile, Nissan and Renault earned a combined $8 billion in profits, selling half as many cars as GM. Rather than oppose the alliance outright, Wagner proposes that Nissan and Renault pay GM several billion dollars up front since they would likely benefit more from the deal than the struggling GM. So Wagner cloaks himself in shareholder interests and ends up killing the alliance. At this point, Kerkorian sells his position for a $100 million gain, which by his standards is a disappointment. In January 2007, during the 100th Detroit Auto Show, Wagner confronted Mike Jackson, the CEO of Auto Nation, a major car dealership chain. Wagner accused Jackson of causing problems with the GM board by publicly criticizing GM for producing too many cars and then pressuring dealers to accept them. Jackson refused to back down, accusing GM of channel stuffing. This was where cars were sent to dealers without their consent. The car companies then sent bills and refused to take the cars back. GM dealers had more than a million unsold vehicles on their lot, and the pressure to push more cars onto dealers was intense. Quote, Jackson was fed up, though. You're a public company, I'm a public company, and we can't do this, he told Wagner. Stop stuffing my stores, unquote. To make dealers take the inventory, the companies used a carrot-and-stick approach, offering incentives in the form of discounts and penalties in the form of reduced numbers of popular models. These discounts, in addition to consumer rebates, eroded profits and tarnished the reputation of established brands like Chevrolet, Dodge, and Ford. This led to a vicious cycle of declining sales, escalating discounts, and increasing losses. Jackson believed this cycle was pushing the big three towards bankruptcy. 2007 also brought with it new contract negotiations with the UAW. In July 2007, GM posted earnings of almost $900 million. Normally, this return to modest profitability would be a good thing. But GM was stuck trying to appease two different factions, Wall Street and the UAW. GM wanted to boast about how great its turnaround was going and how impressive this $900 million was, but at the same time, it wanted to tell the UAW that the company was just scraping by and the union really needed to make some concessions in this next contract. Quote, GM's unfunded health care liabilities had swollen to $51 billion. 
the 450,000 U.S. hourly workers the company had in 1985 had shrunk to under 74,000, yet GM continued to provide generous health care benefits for 340,000 UAW retirees and their spouses. It was now a ratio of nearly five retirees for every active worker, an increase from the three-to-one ratio of a few years earlier, because the company continued to shrink. GM's numbers were unsustainable, like a preview of what might happen to the U.S. Social Security system 30 years in the future. Except this was now, and GM, unlike the federal government, couldn't print money to pay its retirees. The burden added more than $1,600 to the cost of every car and truck that General Motors made, unquote. I've heard a few times now that the healthcare expense is more than the cost of steel used in the cars. With the growing healthcare expenses, the big three discussed establishing a voluntary employee beneficiary association, otherwise referred to as a VEBA, to manage retiree healthcare costs. The VEBA would be funded with fixed company payments, but controlled by the UAW, allowing them to decide how healthcare benefits would be distributed. For the car companies, this meant capping their financial liability for healthcare expenses, and for the UAW, this meant some longer-term security in case the car companies went bankrupt, in which case the UAW members would lose their healthcare benefits entirely. So once again, the UAW turned to Wall Street to see if there was a possibility that the big three could in fact go bankrupt, and once again, the answer was a resounding yes. In September, Gettelfinger led a two-day strike and then declared victory, but compared to all its previous contracts, this was no victory for the UAW. For the first time ever, the union accepted a two-tier wage system with lower pay for new hires. This was one of the major issues that the UAW was just striking about in 2023. The UAW also agreed to the VEBA, GM agreed to cover $51 billion of unfunded retiree health care liabilities with a payment of $35 billion in cash to the trust, roughly 70 cents on the dollar. Ford and Chrysler followed suit. Only a few weeks later, GMAC revealed it had losses of almost $2 billion in subprime mortgages. The only silver lining was now Cerberus owned 51% of that mess. The biggest shock came in March when GM wrote off almost $40 billion in tax credits that could be used to reduce taxes on future profits. Due to a recent change in the ability to carry forward unused tax credits indefinitely, the credits would now only be good for a few years. By writing off the credits, GM was signaling that it had no expectation of being profitable anytime in the near future. The stock fell 40%. Despite accumulating $55 billion in losses since launching his plan to transform the company, Rick Wagner refused to admit any significant errors. He told shareholders that GM had made substantial progress on all fronts, but announced the closure of four truck factories, a renewed focus on small cars, and considered selling the Hummer brand, all of which had basically been suggested by Jerry York over two years earlier. It was a blatant contradiction as Wagner praised the company's progress 
while simultaneously abandoning the strategy that led to said progress. Shareholders responded by quickly selling off their GM stock. On June 4th, GM closed at $17 a share, its lowest level in 26 years. By the end of the month, it would drop another 33% to $11.50. GM announced new layoffs, suspended its dividend, and eliminated medical benefits for retired managers and executives over 65. When second quarter results came out for 2008, GM announced a shocking loss of $15.5 billion. This was about $180,000 per minute, 24 hours a day, between April 1st and June 30th. Quote, The list of failures on Wagner's watch was astounding. The fiat debacle, $70 billion of losses since 2005, counting the latest quarterly results and GM's endlessly eroding market share, and all of it, except for the very latest losses, had preceded $4 a gallon gas by years, unquote. Skipping ahead, quote, General Motors, once the richest company on earth, the originator of tail fins and muscle cars, the font of the organizational principles used by every modern corporation, was actually, and incredibly, going broke, unquote. On September 15, 2008, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Consumers were afraid to buy cars, and lenders were afraid to lend. Car sales dropped to their lowest levels in 30 years. The timing could not have been worse. After one failed attempt that sent markets reeling, Congress finally passed the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, on September 29, 2008. This secured $700 billion to inject into the failing banking system. President Bush was on his way out of office and President Obama would soon be on his way in. Both men preferred the other deal with collapsing autos, but neither wanted to preside over the bankruptcy of iconic companies that employed hundreds of thousands of people. In November 2008, the CEOs of GM, Chrysler, and Ford got on their private jets, the way that most CEOs travel, and headed to Washington to discuss bailout money. The amount that was initially floated was $25 billion, which was to be divided among the three companies based on their market shares. But the question that kept coming up was, where was this figure coming from, and how could the government be assured that the companies wouldn't blow right through it and be right back there in a few months with the same problems. The executives didn't really have a good response to that. And then, of course, they were derided for coming in private jets to plead their cases for being so impoverished. One congressman commented that it was like seeing someone show up to a soup kitchen in a high hat and tuxedo. This is also when the public was introduced to the jobs bank. One senator asked, quote, I find it very difficult to believe you're asking for $25 billion when you have an agreement in place to pay 95% to workers who are not working for how long, unquote, to which Gettelfinger replied, he'd have to look at the contract. Ingracia notes 
that of course Gettlefinger knew the answer, but the truth was simply too embarrassing. The hearings quickly became fodder for Saturday Night Live, where the fictional executives returned to D.C., but this time drove their own vehicles and experienced a bunch of mishaps like random electrical shocks or the upholstery catching fire. When the committee did convene again in December, life imitated art, and the executives actually did drive from Detroit to D.C. rather than fly in their private jets. This time... Ford said it was actually going to be okay. It had managed to get a $23 billion loan in 2006, so now it was just Chrysler and GM that were facing bankruptcy. There had been talk of merging the two, but this was ultimately likened to tying two rocks together to try to make them float. It wasn't until early December that GM even hired any bankruptcy lawyers, something that Ford and Chrysler had done much earlier. Quote, the man who had bet the company on SUVs was betting it again on getting government money, unquote. Congress was afraid to say no after the collapse of Lehman. The numbers that were being speculated in terms of the economic fallout from the bankruptcy of GM were frightening to people. Estimates were that 3 million jobs could be lost within a year, personal income could be reduced by $150 billion, and tax tax revenue could decline by more than $156 billion over three years. After meeting with all the auto analysts he could speak to, Senator Corker, who was a successful businessman, said that any funding to GM and Chrysler had to be conditional, otherwise they would just keep returning for more handouts. Corker's Three points were, first, in return for the $14 billion, GM and Chrysler would have to cut their debt by two-thirds by getting their bondholders to agree to a stock for debt swap. Second, the UAW would have to accept stock in GM and Chrysler in lieu of cash for half the amount the companies owed the VIBA trust. And third, the union would have to agree to achieving wage parity with the Japanese car plants in America in 2009. The first two points were achievable, but the union would not budge on wage parity and the deal fell apart. Ultimately, President Bush decided he did not want to preside over the collapse of GM and Chrysler in the waning days of his presidency and diverted $17 billion from TARP funds to ensure that did not happen. Fisher, the board member, was quoted as saying, I am so proud of Rick for the way he handled himself through those discussions. Rick will go down in history as one of the great CEOs of GM and maybe of the auto industry. I will bet you on that one when this is all over. Quote, True to his Tammy Wynette style, Fisher was standing by his man, unquote. The interim funding that President Bush had approved for GM and Chrysler would expire on March 31st. Both companies sought an additional $21.6 billion in federal assistance on top of the $17.4 billion they had already received. Without getting too much into the Chrysler story, 
There were very real discussions about whether or not it was just better to let Chrysler fail, since it would make it that much easier for Ford and GM to survive. Members of the auto task force believed unanimously that GM, unlike Chrysler, could not be allowed to collapse. Chrysler would ultimately merge with Fiat, which had been turned around with the help of the money that Sergio Marchionne had extracted from Wagner and GM. GM was too big to fail. GM had 100,000 employees, thousands of dealers, and 60 different models spanning eight brands. Its history of market dominance had bred a sense of undeserved arrogance as it endured decades of smoldering decline. Its culture excelled in developing reasons not to do something. In order to get additional funding, the government required GM and Chrysler to submit viability plans. GM planned to reposition Pontiac as a niche brand and subject Saturn and Saab to strategic reviews. This was in stark contrast to Ford CEO Alan Mulally's decisive action to get rid of Land Rover and Jaguar. The plan projected market share would stabilize, but if they were eliminating brands, it would only make sense that market share would actually likely decrease. The plan also projected that GM wouldn't repay government loans until 2017, after Obama left office, and that's if he got elected to a second term, which wasn't clear in 2008. The plan also notably rejected bankruptcy as an option. The head of the auto task force was a gentleman by the name of Steve Ratner. Ratner began his career as a reporter for the New York Times, where he covered economics and business. He then began working in investment banking, ultimately starting his own private investment company in 2000. I can't remember who was talking about this. It may have been David Sachs or Chamath Palihapitiya, but someone was saying how there are very few good business writers for newspapers because anybody that can actually really explain what's going on in business is probably going to work on Wall Street. And... Ratner really proves that point. Anyway, Ratner thought bankruptcy was the best tool available to address the long-standing problems at GM, and dismissing it outright was simply foolish. In March, members from the task force traveled to Detroit to meet with Wagner and see how things were progressing at the company. Ratner asked Wagner how he envisioned his future at GM. Not exactly subtle. Wagner told Ratner that he would step aside for the good of the company if needed, but he believed he had several more good years to give. The task force didn't believe that. Ratner thought GM might just be the worst managed company he had ever seen. Ratner recommended to Obama that Rick Wagner be removed for the good of the company. At the end of March, Ratner met with Wagner once again and told him that the task force would like to take him up on his offer to step aside for the good of the company. Ratner had expected Wagner to be angry, maybe argue with him, but instead Wagner asked if Ratner was also going to get rid of Gettelfinger from the UAW. Ratner told Wagner that Gettelfinger worked for the UAW and that GM was getting the government bailout, not the UAW. Wagner called the board to update them. Quote, they weren't angry at Wagner, nor at themselves, at least not outwardly. 
They were angry at Steve Ratner. No government official, not even the president, had the right to fire Wagner, they protested. Only the shareholders could fire him, and they, the directors, represented the shareholders. A boardroom revolt was brewing, not against the CEO, as in most such uprisings, but for the CEO, unquote. Ratner spoke with the board and reiterated that Wagner had not been fired. He had been asked to resign. Wagner could refuse to resign, or the board could refuse to accept his resignation, but the government could also choose not to give the additional 20-plus billion that the company was asking for. Quote, The board that had presided over GM's downfall wasn't calling the shots anymore. GM's banker was in charge, and its banker was the United States of America, unquote. This crisis in 2009 parallels GM's situation in 1910. At that time, GM faced excessive debt and too many car models. Then, however, it was the New York banks that intervened and sidelined the CEO, as opposed to Uncle Sam. Quote, Wagner had once been regarded as a young Turk reformer, but was ending his GM career as a symbol of corporate culture that defied reform. He hadn't solely caused GM's demise, which had begun before he joined the company in 1977, fresh out of Harvard Business School, but he had failed to take the risky but necessary moves, cutting excess brands, dealers, work rules, the jobs bank, and all the other baggage weighing down General Motors to stem the company's slide as it accelerated dramatically during his years as CEO. Instead, he had bet the company on mortgages, trucks, and SUVs, and they had proved losing bets, unquote. On March 29, 2009, Wagner formally resigned. Fritz Henderson, the CFO, was promoted to CEO. GMAC would be bailed out by becoming a bank-holding company. In 2010, it was rebranded as Ally Financial and is now a completely independent entity from GM. This is sort of similar to how Synchrony Financial was spun out of GE Capital. In April, GM looked to exchange $27 billion in unsecured debt for GM stock in order to avoid bankruptcy, emphasizing the need to remove 90% of the debt, but convincing debt holders to exchange bonds for GM stock was very challenging as the stock being offered had very limited appeal to them. Not surprisingly, nowhere near enough debt holders agreed to swap their notes for GM shares. In May, investors' confidence was further eroded after the company reported a staggering $6 billion loss in the first quarter. GM's cash burn rate was now over $10 billion, double the rate from late 2008. Production had plummeted by over 40% to 1.3 million cars. Quote, the company that couldn't make money in good times was melting down dramatically as industry-wide sales plunged to 30-year lows, unquote. Since there were no other takers, the U.S. government would obtain 60% of GM stock in return for an additional $30 billion of financing. The Canadian government would get 12.5%, the UAW 17.5%, and the unsecured debt holders 
the UAW wanted cash for its Viva instead of GM stock of questionable value, even though the task force offered the union $6.5 billion in preferred shares, which would pay dividends immediately. GM's creditors, who held $6 billion in secured debt, would be paid in full, but GM's unsecured creditors, many of them small investors, would get just 12.5 cents on the dollar. Even though taxpayers had invested $50 billion in aid, double the original $25 billion proposed by the Big Three that previous November, a lot of dealers, employees, creditors, and stockholders were going to suffer. Then there was Delphi, which GM had supported with $12 billion over the previous three years, nearly double what Steve Miller had originally asked for. GM agreed to take back certain Delphi plants, undoing the very reason it had spun off those factories in the first place. It had been said that the finance guys were in charge at GM rather than the car guys. The analysts at the task force, trying to wrap their heads around the 800,000 worldwide contracts, were now seeing why this was the case. The task force was overwhelmed and asked GM and the UAW to negotiate new cost-saving work rules. Without the task force's direct supervision, the two parties quickly reverted back into old habits. They agreed to abolish the jobs bank, but the contract's new attendance procedure still allowed employees to have six unexcused absences without getting fired. The task force members didn't learn about that part until they read about it in the papers. Quote, During more than a century of existence, the company of Billy Durant, Alfred Sloan, and Harley Earl, and yes, of Roger Smith and Rick Wagner too, had made history. It had defined American corporate power with everything from manufacturing might to muscle cars. Now just seven months after celebrating its 100th birthday, General Motors was about to make history of a different sort. Unquote. On the morning of Monday, June 1st, lawyers entered into U.S. bankruptcy court in Lower Manhattan and began filing petitions on behalf of GM. They stated that GM's $172 billion of liabilities overwhelmed its $82 billion of assets and that the company's $59.5 billion in stock market value in April 2000, two months before Rick Wagner became CEO, had been all but wiped out. The company would be split into new GM, consisting of Cadillac, Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and other viable assets, and old GM, including Saturn, Saab, Hummer, Pontiac, and other stuff, which would be sold if buyers could be found, otherwise it would be liquidated. GM's restructuring plan called for closing up to 14 more factories and letting go another 20,000 employees by the end of 2011. Quote, The task force had brought more common sense to GM than the company had seen in decades. The jobs bank was ridiculous. So were mountains of debt, crippling work rules, eight different brands, and dozens of different look-share cars that were almost alike. Unquote. Skipping ahead. Quote, As events had actually unfolded, however, the alternative to saving Chrysler, and especially GM, was what? Maybe their outright collapse wouldn't have deepened America's worst economic crisis 
since the Great Depression, but it would have been foolhardy to find out, unquote. That's where the book ends. But since that time, GM has returned to the stock market in 2010 with a more streamlined operation and a renewed focus on profitability and innovation. And it's been working to regain its former stature. Mary Barra became the CEO in 2014. She's the current CEO now. And under her leadership, the company has emphasized EVs and self-driving technology, which is the company's cruise division. Since the company's IPO in 2010, GM has underperformed the broader market. The stock began trading at $33 in 2010. As of November 3rd, the stock was last trading at $29.77, so certainly below the IPO price in 2010. The only positive return you would have seen if you were still holding the stock from the IPO period would have been in the form of dividend payments totaling $8.15. That would place the total return for GM since its IPO at just around 11% compared to 220% for the S&P 500 over the same time frame. Rick Wagner seems to have kept a fairly low profile. He's on the board of directors for ChargePoint, and it looks like he was on the board of, of directors for Rivian up until about a year or two ago. The current UAW president, Sean Fain, was elected after two former presidents went to jail, Gary Jones and Dennis Williams. Gary Jones was sentenced to 28 months in prison in 2021 for conspiring with other UAW officials to embezzle union funds and defraud the United States. He was released from prison in June 2022 after serving less than a year. Dennis Williams was sentenced to 21 months in prison in 2022, also for conspiring to embezzle union funds, and was released from prison in March 2022 after serving nine months. Again, the UAW had just gone on strike very recently. According to PBS, the union's key demands were a 46% pay increase, a four-day work week, overtime pay for work beyond 32 hours, union representation at EV battery plants, and the end of the two-tier wage system. Again, they, they had just recently reached an agreement where all three of the automakers agreed to a 25% wage increase over the next four years, bringing the top wage at all three companies to over $42 an hour, up from $32 an hour currently. The companies also agreed to cost of living adjustments, which were previously lost during the Great Recession, 
The contract also give work, gives workers the right to transfer to battery plants or EV plants when there are openings. And finally, it did eliminate the two-tier wage system from 2007. So just a few side notes that were just sort of interesting things that didn't quite fit into the story here. In 2009, GM announced it would discontinue the Hummer brand after attempts to sell the brand to a Chinese company fell through. The production of Hummers was ultimately wound down with the last vehicles manufactured in 2010. But in 2020, GM announced the Hummer brand would be revived as an EV. So one other interesting fact. In March 1948, Henry Ford II met with British army officials in Germany who offered him for free a partially destroyed factory producing a unique beetle-shaped car. One of Ford's VPs advised against taking it, saying, quote, Mr. Ford, I don't think what we are being offered here is worth a damn, unquote. Sixty years later, that company, Volkswagen, would be worth more than General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler combined. And finally, a car company called Duesenberg had made cars that people liked so much, it led to the saying, it's a doozy. I don't know if that's the only origin of that phrase, but I thought that was pretty interesting. So again, the book is Crash Course by Paul Ingrassia. Just a fantastic book. Lots of great history about the car companies and the great financial crisis. I can't recommend it enough. Thanks so much for listening.